1: Open with me to Luke chapter nine as we continue. In our Father's word, Luke chapter nine, beginning in verse 18, I can't think of a better thing to do than to start the new year, picking up where we left off, which is Luke's gospel. By the time we're done, we'll go through the entire gospel of Luke, every single verse in Luke's gospel will be covered. And we are in the process of discovering, some of us for the very first time, who Jesus is. Others of us are in the process of rediscovering who Jesus is. And this particular passage of Scripture is no exception to that. As we look at our Father's Word, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, now it happened that as he, Jesus, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is a passage of firsts, a passage of firsts. There are several firsts in this passage. For example, beginning in verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. The first instance in which Jesus is praying, getting away by himself, but now it seems like a contradiction at first. Jesus is alone, but it says the disciples are with him. But which is it, Luke? Is Jesus alone or are the disciples with him? This is the first time that we see Jesus going away and praying with the disciples. They're now with him. Jesus is passing the baton. He's investing in these men. A good deal of time has passed. They've seen him cast out demons, heal the sick. They've seen Jesus perform miraculous signs and wonders. They've seen Jesus get alone, getting up early in the morning and go away and pray by himself in a solitary place, a secret place, a desolate place. And now the disciples are with him. It's a time of firsts. And Jesus is reminding us and modeling for us, if the almighty son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus had to get away and spend personal private time with his heavenly father for intimacy and closeness, then what about those who are following Jesus? Listen, we just moved from a place where we were living out of boxes for over an entire year. We thought we would be there for three or four months. We ended up being there for over a year, and we lived in a place with boxes all over. Now if you lived in a, places, in a, in a place, if you ever lived in a place where there are boxes all over, it's hard because the boxes are everywhere, to find a desolate place, a secret closet, someplace where it's just you and your Bible. We were able to find it, sometimes more successfully than others. If we could do it, you can do it. You've got to find a place, a secret place, a desolate place, some place in your house, some place on your property, some place might be at your workplace. Maybe your work has a place where the boss or the bosses or the company will allow you to be in a room by yourself, undistracted with the word of God. See, Jesus was God in the flesh. We know that from John's Gospel and elsewhere throughout the scriptures again and again. John chapter 1, the word became flesh, lived among us for a while. That's the whole point. Jesus was not just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a smart, intelligent teacher. He was God in the flesh. He communed, maintained his intimacy with his heavenly Father. On the cross, when Jesus said those words, it's revealing to us. He said these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were the words Jesus spoke when for the first time, he was experiencing a lack of intimacy with his heavenly Father. For your sake and for mine. Till that point, the practice, the habit the proactive nature of jesus was to go after his heavenly father with a passion and if you're following jesus you will have a passion for your heavenly father too and the way that's cultivated listen you cannot worship a god you don't know you've got to be in the word of god the bible you've got to have time where you're regularly consistently getting aside without distraction, opening up, cracking open the Word of God, and you should bring a journal. You should bring a notebook pad and a pen, something that can be more valuable than something that's disposable, not just a scrap piece of paper here and there. If that's all you've got, then save it for later. But listen. You wanna have something that you write these truths on for future reference. If you knew that you were going to get away and God was going to speak to you, would you not want to record what it is he's going to say? If you knew that God wanted, God was inviting you to a party and it was just you and him. And he was going to show up and speak to you. Would you show up empty handed or would you not want to record what the almighty God of creation, the God of redemption who knows you by name wants to say to you? Jesus is demonstrating as the first, the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus would rise from the dead being the first. Who would rise from the dead, those who follow Jesus, who know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, will be risen from the dead, We will rise from the dead like Jesus. If Jesus modeled closeness with his heavenly Father, you and I have got to do that as well. Everything in your life that comes down the pipeline will be an overflow of your walk with the Lord, or you'll be found wanting and lacking because you have not walked in intimacy with jesus you will always handle life's difficulties you'll always handle the ice storms much better if you're walking in intimacy with your heavenly father than if you weren't and here jesus in a first of firsts is continuing the practice of privately getting alone with his heavenly father, but now inviting the 12 apostles to join him. You see, Jesus has something to pass on. And if you're a follower of Jesus, so do you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have something to pass on out of the overflow of your intimacy with God the Father. Can you imagine your children one day opening your journal that you used in your private devotions with God in his word and discovering your your honesty and your transparency and your vulnerability and your humanness? how that would motivate them and inspire them to be transparent and open and honest with God as they would see the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your flesh, in your body. They would see the work of the Spirit of God in your body and then they would get the behind the scenes glimpse as to how that came about because you were surrendering to God. If your children are young, if your children are older, someday somebody's going to have the privilege of opening up your journal. Don't sanitize it and rob somebody of the privilege of seeing their own humanity. Be honest and vulnerable and transparent about how you see your own warts. Listen, God sees your warts more than you see them. He's got 20-20 vision. He knows your shortcomings and he loves you despite every single one of them loves you so much that he would give his only uniquely brought forth son to die on a cross. You're not worthless, you're unworthy. I'm unworthy of the death of Jesus Christ, but you are worth a great deal to God the Father and to Jesus because Jesus wouldn't die for junk. God the Father wouldn't rescue junk. Jesus is in the practice of getting alone, bringing the disciples along, and here he wants to take an inventory. He's been ministering for a while. He just got done off the heels of feeding the 5,012, five loaves and two fishes, and there are 12 baskets full of leftovers. How'd you like Jesus to come to your house and serve dinner? You'd have quite a few leftovers, one for each of the tribes of Israel, one for each of the apostles. They're being taught and told, demonstrated right before their very eyes that when you follow Jesus, Jesus will provide. Out of nothing, Jesus can make something. You follow Jesus, you won't walk away empty-handed. You'll have everything you need to do what? To follow Jesus. And Jesus wants to take an inventory. He asks them in verse 18, who do the crowds say that I am? These throngs among the 5,000 men On top of that, the women and the children, the thousands upon thousands, the other crowds that we see elsewhere in this gospel and other gospel accounts, who do the crowds say that I am? And they give him the same answer that Herod had concluded. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, probably a reference to Malachi chapter four, where it said that the Lord would send his servant Elijah before that great terrible day of the Lord, the day of the messianic kingdom, when the kingdom of God was being ushered in. God would send his servant Elijah before the Christ, before the Messiah would come. And then they say, and others say, well, one of the prophets of old has risen. And you can almost get this sense of Jesus leaning in closely and perhaps even whispering and saying, but how about you? Who do you say that I am? You whom I've been investing in for all this length of time, you who have seen, the, being part of my inner circle, the demons being cast out, and the lame and the lepers, and all these people with afflictions of so many kinds that they're not even all listed in the scriptures. All of these diseases and sicknesses, you've seen me yield every single one of them. I wanna take stock of my investment, I wanna see if I'm having a good return for my investment, oh 12, who do you say? You, my inner circle, who do you say that I am? Peter gets a bad rap because he's known as being the one who denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in Jesus' deepest, darkest hour. If you know the scriptures, you know the gospel accounts, you know that Peter's the one who denies Jesus three times after being told ahead of time, you're going to deny me three times. And what does Peter do? He fulfills what Jesus prophesied. Jesus, uh Peter often gets that bad rap for being the one who denied Jesus three times. But here, it's a time of firsts when Peter has his aha moment about the identity of Jesus Christ. In verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, out of all of them, Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. Now, it becomes very clear to us that Peter did not have the understanding of what Jesus understood for the Messiah, of what God the Father understood to be the Messiah, that that becomes abundantly clear, as we'll get to in just a moment. But make no mistake about it, Peter has his aha moment, and you must too. Peter has that moment where everything crystallizes at least for that moment, at least for a season, everything comes clear, he begins to connect the dots, and he begins to understand that Jesus is not just a mere mortal, he's not just a sage and a wise teacher, he is God's anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. The, not a, the anointed one by God. He's not a mere mortal. He's God in the flesh. He is the savior of the world. Now, did Peter have the understanding of Jesus being the Messiah that at that particular moment, did he have the understanding of Jesus being Messiah that he did by the time we come to the end of Luke's gospel? No, he didn't. Did you or do you, if you're a new believer, have all the understanding of who Jesus is as savior, Messiah, anointed one that you will have one day when you stand before him? No, you don't. When I was first saved, I was in high school in Washington, New Jersey, Warren Hills Regional Senior High School, and I was 17 years old, and in the fall of my senior year, very important year, your senior year, I mean, got, you're playing the role as a senior. You're the one that everybody looks up to. In the fall of my senior year, I was taking calculus, struggling, as many of you do, with balancing your checkbook. Imagine me taking calculus. My calculus teacher, Dave Nace, was also the yearbook advisor and I was one of the editors on the yearbook. So I was always staying after for either working on the yearbook or working on calculus, struggling with calculus, and he was a believer. Still is a believer. He was sharing the gospel with other classmates. Imagine a public school teacher having the nerve to share the gospel openly in a society in a day and an age where it's not politically correct. In a day and an age where the government wants to tell us you cannot share your faith in the public school system, he had the chutzpah to share with me. No, it's not chutzpah. He had the Holy Spirit prompting him to share the gospel with other students, and I would make like I was working on my calculus. I was very proficient in deception. As he was diligently sharing the gospel, I couldn't go there because I knew what Christians looked like in my high school. I knew that they were the geeky ones the goofy ones, and I was a senior. There's no way I'm blowing my senior year in high school by getting born again, accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I had a certain understanding of what Jesus, what it meant to follow Jesus and who Jesus was that's quite different today, 30-some years after the fact. God made himself irresistible. spirit of God was wooing me and pursuing me just like he's doing with you and so I made the fable, faithful mistake of asking a question to Mr. Nace who began to answer the question about the gospel not calculus and so over a period of days he led me to Christ and I remember being in the bedroom of our house on Bickle Road in Washington the room that I shared with my brother. One night after the gospel became so clear and I had my aha moment about the need to have all my sins forgiven and I lay there in my bed and I wept. And three times that night I gave my life to Jesus Christ. As my personal Savior, my personal Lord, and my Master. See, I was raised Catholic. Some of you have been raised Catholic. You might still be Catholic. And I had understood from the earliest of times about the death of Jesus. In fact, we called him Jesus Christ Understood from the earliest times about the resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, is God the Father's statement of approval of the death of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Why would God the Father raise Jesus from the dead? Why didn't Jesus raise himself from the dead? Because God the Father was the judge and the jury. Casting his verdict on the sinless, spotless life of Jesus and his death on the cross. And for God the Father to raise Jesus from the dead was his seal of approval. It was his verdict that I believe that Jesus' life, his death on the cross is the only satisfaction that I need, says God the Father, for the forgiveness of your sins and everyone's. But I was raised Catholic and the death of Jesus, for me anyway, was something out there, nebulous for the whole world. Jesus died for the whole world was nothing personal about that there was nothing that i needed to respond to but when i heard the gospel and i heard that i needed to personally give my life to jesus christ that it couldn't just be out there for all the world that jesus didn't die on, on the cross only for the sins of the world he died on the cross for the forgiveness of mike's sins and it was up to me to do something with that it was up to me to do something with jesus was he or was he not going to be personally my savior and my lord and i had that aha moment many of you have some of you haven't but you must cross over from being dead to being alive you must be born again jesus says it in john chapter 3 you must recognize that jesus is your savior the one who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, you must have your aha moment. Peter did. Now, did I recognize everything about Jesus when I first got saved? No, I had a mouth. I was a purveyor of four-letter words. I could sculpt them and paint them and craft them and use them as adjectives, pronouns, nouns create adjectival phrases that were just stellar that would have your mouth dropping on the floor. I remember my older brother saying to me at one point, "What did you just say?" He came to know Christ before I did. Was strategic in planting the seeds before my calculus teacher shared the gospel and challenged me it was my older brother who planted all those seeds over a good number of months that paved the way for me to be able to understand the gospel, I had a mouth lie on me like you would not believe. Listen, there are areas of your life where Jesus is not yet totally Lord, but he's becoming Lord because you're really following him. And following Jesus is evidence of faith in Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you don't have faith in Jesus. If your life isn't changing, you don't have the Spirit of God inside of you, which is necessary for change. But at least here, Peter, at an entry level, makes that statement, you are the Christ of God. And you can almost hear Jesus say, oh, you know what, have a seat here, Peter, because now I need to explain to you, I need to define for you what Christ is all about. Because if I leave it up to you, if God were to leave it up to mere mortals at that point to spread the message of what the Messiah is, they might have recreated Jesus in their own image. In fact, in John chapter six, verse 15, In John chapter 6, verse 15, they forcibly come at Jesus to make him king. And Jesus hid himself in the temple grounds. He hid himself because man's understanding of the Messiah was different than God's understanding of the Messiah. We all think we need to be saved from things. Some of you think you need to be saved from your spouse. No, your spouse needs to be saved from you. All of us have an understanding that's very limited of what our real need is, and God understands that fully. He understood it fully then. He has to sit down with Peter and the other 12 and define for them what Christ means. What will the Messiah look like? What is the main thing? It's important to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is that Jesus would live to die. That's the whole purpose of Jesus' life, born to die. Look at Jesus' statement here in verse 21. After Jesus says, you're the Christ of God, Jesus says, that's awesome, thank you for recognizing that. Go and tell everybody. Spread the news. It's not what he does. Verse 21 says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one at that particular time they needed to be educated they needed to be taken to the next level of their understanding of what they needed to be saved from of who jesus really was and who jesus really is the the mission at this point would be in jeopardy if jesus were to have left it into the hands of mere mortals because they needed their training was not complete there would come a day when their training would be complete and they would be released into ministry and this same peter who has this aha moment and is the first person recorded in all of scripture to make this statement that you are the christ of god this saint peter would preach a message and three thousand men not counting women and children would get saved that's more than jesus entire three-year ministry there would come a time when they would be fully educated to the point where they could then proclaim who Christ was but at this particular point they had to be educated and Jesus takes them and says to them in verse 22 the son of man Jesus most popular term in use of himself coming from Daniel chapter 7 the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests this is the first time that Jesus is referring to his own death It's the first time that the words are used, the elders and the chief priests. Luke is introducing for us the the antagonists in this drama. The elders and the chief priests would play a strategic role in the crucifixion of Jesus. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what it means to be the Messiah. That's what it means to be the Christ. That's what it means to be the Savior. That's what it means to be the anointed one. To live so that others would live as a result of your death. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Leviticus, that famous book that you are using in your devotional time, I know that. The book of Leviticus that we think is inconsequential, insignificant to us today in New Testament times, but it's hugely significant, and you should never forget Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement, that's for the removal of sins, for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It wasn't just that Jesus had to, had to die, but Jesus died on a the cross. There had to be shedding of his blood. He did not die by blunt force trauma. His blood had to be shed, and it's told, we're told specifically in Leviticus 17, 11, why the blood was important. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, look with me. First Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed, purchased from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, those who didn't know Christ, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb without blemish or spot. The dots are being connected. The fuses should be blowing at this point, that we understand the importance of the blood of Jesus as we turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 19. Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, referencing the Old Testament, to all the people he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant. See, covenants were ratified, sealed by blood. This is the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Central to the life of Jesus Christ would be the death of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget the centrality of the cross. If Jesus didn't go to the cross and shed his blood, there would be no forgiveness for your sins or for mine. The blood of Jesus is what sets you free. The death of Jesus by the shedding of his blood is the greatest news that you and I would ever hear. Greatest news we could ever hear. Let's continue. Next verse. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. In other words, referring to Moses on earth with the earthly tabernacle and then the temple later on, they are reflections of what's in the heavenlies. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This is the idea of a mediator, a go-between. Jesus appears before God the Father on your behalf. The next time you're worried and concerned about having a condemning thought about something you did in the past or something you just did, if you're convicted by the Spirit of God and you confess it before God, and you know that you're saved by the blood of jesus then take courage in the fact that you have a mediator a go-between between between you and the father who is considered flawless perfect spotless his name is jesus that's what it means to be a mediator it's a go-between for christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, listen to this, for then he'd have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. I love that because it helps us understand that when Jesus came and died on the cross, that was the beginning of the end. We're living in the end of the ages. We're living in the last days. You don't believe it. It's right there in the Bible. We should be living as if it really is the end of the age. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because he did that the first time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews, For since the law has but a shadow consequently when christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then i said behold this is jesus speaking to the father i have come to do your will O god as it is written of me in the scroll of the book when he said the above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hold it right there in verse 10. We have been, past tense, sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One sacrifice for every human being. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, referring to the Old Testament. That was the Old Testament practice that was happening, even in that day when the book of Hebrews was being written, when the temple was still up, most likely. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Stay right there. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified you know there's a sense in which when you come to know christ you are sanctified you're set apart for god all of your sins are washed away yes past present and future all of your sins are washed away by the precious blood of jesus christ and if you don't care about your sin it might be evidence that you don't really have jesus as your personal savior and lord you might not have had that aha moment if you don't care about your own sin not a license to sin in the future. When you understand that Jesus died for all of your sins, past, present, and future, that'll motivate you to not keep sinning. When you come to know Christ, you're set apart, you're sanctified, you're washed by the blood of Jesus, and then what happens? you are perfected for all time and you are in verse 14 of hebrews 5, hebrews chapter 10 you are being sanctified you were set apart so that you could walk in a way that is set apart walking in a sanctified life walking in a way where you are understanding and discovering the identity of jesus christ more so today than you were last week is what it means to be sanctified I was drinking when I was in college after having given my life to Jesus Christ. You say, well, if you really gave your life to Jesus Christ, what were you still doing? Drinking and getting drunk. The same thing you're doing while you're gossiping and slandering your neighbor. Same thing you're doing while you're coveting the car that your neighbor is driving or you're watching a television program you shouldn't be watching or watching something on the internet you shouldn't be viewing. Same thing you're doing by allowing thoughts to go through your mind about other people or about God or about yourself that you shouldn't be allowing. All of us have been sanctified and are being sanctified. If we're really following Jesus Christ, it's what God has done once for all through the death of Jesus Christ, and it's what continues because of the death of Jesus Christ in the life and in the lives of every single person who's truly given their life to Jesus Christ. If you're sanctified, you should live a sanctified life. One day I was reading the book of Ephesians where it said, when I was in college, I remember being there on the third floor of Tinsley Dormitory at Rutgers University. And reading the book of Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And I said, huh, an aha moment. My sanctification took a quantum leap forward. I guess I can't get drunk anymore. Aren't you thankful that God sanctified you and is at work in you to transform you so that your marriage is different today than it was last year. Your thought life can be different next week than it is at this very moment, not because of what you have done, not because of what you're gonna do, but because of what Jesus did once for all on the cross as the Messiah, as the Christ, as God's anointed one. It's the first time that Jesus lays it out out of his own lips, what's in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. As Jesus unpacks that five-letter English word Christ and helps him understand all the riches that are in that word, all the riches that are in his person. You and I can't even exhaust in a 30, 40, 50-minute message on a Sunday morning. We can't exhaust all oh the riches that are in the person and the works of Jesus Christ. But we can have an aha moment. We can take deeper and deeper steps of surrender and obedience to God as God does what? As he teaches us through his word, the truths about Jesus, the truths about who we are in relationship to him, and what is wrapped up in the profession. What is wrapped up in the confession? Of the Apostle Peter when he says, You are the Christ of God. Oh, how well, we need God to help us understand who He is, help us understand who we are in relationship to Him, so that everything that Jesus had in mind for you when He hung on the cross would be released and you would rise up to being the man, the woman. The boy, the girl that Jesus had in mind when he hung on the cross.
0: You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.